Where do you want to give blood? And it was great counsel. It was great counsel. Thus, to serve God realistically, you must learn to wait on Him and to work with people. And finally, to serve God realistically, we must learn to wrestle with the problems. So anytime you try to do anything significant for God, there's going to be problems. The enemy will see to that. We've already seen how Nehemiah dealt with the problem of the enemies, but also how he had to face the problem of a destroyed wall. And he began with a realistic, first-hand appraisal of the situation. He looked at it realistically. How do you serve God realistically? In today's message from Pastor Mark, He teaches you that there are three things you need to learn to serve God realistically. You need to learn how to wait on Him, how to work with people, and how to deal with problems that come your way. When you serve the Lord, you will face many problems. The enemy will throw all sorts of problems your way, and it's important that you are able to face them. When you learn to wait on the Lord to direct you within your problems and are able to work well with those around you, you will be able to handle the problems that come your way with love and grace. Well, let's join Pastor Mark in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2 for today's edition of Come Alive. A second thing you can think about is to serve God realistically, we must learn to work with people. How many of you work with people? Raise your hands. Let me see. All of us do. Do you, do, do you like every one of those people? No. Do they get on your nerves? Yes. I mean, if we're honest, they do. See, it's easy to be idealistic about serving God until you meet the actual people that you have to work with, until you get side by side with them. Suddenly you realize the truth that Linus had shouted, I love mankind, it's people I can't stand, right? And so the ministry and anything you do involves people, many people. Many people bomb out of ministry or serving in the church because they've never learned how to work with other people. They want to do things their way. And oftentimes in ministry, we're called to be servants. We're called to sit back and say, okay, cool, we'll see if this works. And if it doesn't work, hey, can, can I make a suggestion? I'm always that guy that's like, man, the more suggestions, the better. That's the less things I have to plan and think about. So some people are very abrasive or insensitive. And when people react against them, they develop a persecution complex. But Nehemiah, he was a sensitive person and he was sensitive to people and he responded with tact. But when he needed and he had a situation come up, he was able to confront the situation with uncompromising strength. You and I as Christians can do this tactfully and lovingly. There are three types of people he dealt with in this chapter. First, Nehemiah knew how to work with an unbelieving king. This was an especially difficult situation because in that king, that was Nehemiah's boss. And if that king didn't like what Nehemiah did, said, or even looked in his presence, well, the king could have had Nehemiah killed. He could have had him beheaded. That's why Nehemiah was very much afraid, it says, when the king asked him why he was sad in his presence. So he didn't rain on this man's parade. Because if he'd have rained on his parade, there would have been severe consequences. Also, the king had previously stopped the work on the wall in Jerusalem. And we know that based off of Ezra chapter 4, verse 21. 
See, the decrees of the kings and the Medes and the Persians were proverbial. They couldn't be changed. Once a king gave an order, that order, no matter what, no matter how the king changed his mind, could not be changed. And so they were unchangeable. Now, Nehemiah wants to convince the Persian king to reverse his policy about Jerusalem. That's not an easy task. How did he do it? Well, as we've seen, he moved the king through private prayer. He went to God. He said, hey, God, if it is your will. It's amazing how God can soften the hearts of the most difficult people if we just spend time asking him to do so. So, you know, one of those things, talk to God before you go and talk to a difficult person. Spend some time in prayer. Also, Nehemiah had gained the king's respect through the, well, the competence on the job. He was a good witness. He'd worked hard for the king. And so the king's inquiry about how soon Nehemiah could return basically shows the king something that he wanted him to come back. The king liked Nehemiah. He said, man, I like you. I want you to come back. Nehemiah's trustworthy character and his loyalty to the king had been obvious over the years that he had served the king. Every Christian should be a witness on the job first by godly character. Your character will say a lot and your competence. And then only second by verbal witness. So first show who you are, let people see, and then show that you're competent in doing things, that you can do the job. And then lastly, open your mouth and then speak because it'll carry a lot more weight. Also, Nehemiah was very tactful and sensitive in how he spoke to the king. He never mentions Jerusalem by name. I've said that a couple of times. That would have been a very sore spot for the king. So he refers to it in personal terms as the place of my father's tombs, a point that this pagan king could totally relate to. So if you have to speak to an unbelieving boss about a difficult subject, let me say this. Think about how he's going to receive it. Think about that first and speak in a manner that he's certain to identify with. That should go for anyone. You know, I learned that in years of being in sales, that if you speak to people at their level in terms they can identify with, then, man, you've got half of the battle won already. You don't speak to a very intelligent man just like, hey, dude, so like, bro, like I was saying, and you speak to them in an intelligent manner. You have to have some smarts about you. Also, Nehemiah knew how to relate to demoralized believers. When he gets there, the Jews in Jerusalem believed in God and his covenant promises, at least intellectually they did. And so they had lost hope. They had tried to rebuild the wall. And I don't know about you, if you try to do something and it doesn't work, you know, at first you don't succeed, try, try again. But a lot of people just give up. So he goes to these people who have basically just given up. They're beat down, they're worn out, and they were shot down, and they were likely to resist this outsider coming in and telling them to try something that they knew could not be done. Anybody ever deal with someone like that where they just like, dude, this can't be done? I had a guy one time, we had to cut down a bunch of trees around this overgrown pond, and I remember when I drove up to it the day that I had bid the job, I drove up to it and I was like, oh man, this is, this is going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot of chainsaws. It's going to take a lot of trailers. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of people. And it's hot. And it's a pond. And there's probably snakes and wasps. And there were plenty of wasps. So I give the bid and the guy sits on it for about two weeks. Well, what happens in two weeks? Things grow. It's even bigger when we get there to do the work. One of my guys sits there, one of my head guys sits there and looks at it, and he just gets really angry. He goes, are you out of your mind? And I'm like, what? He's like, this is impossible. And he goes, there's three of us, 
and you're expecting this to be done by when? I said, when we get it finished. And he was really upset, and I just got out, and I said, look, we got to do it. We told the guy we're going to do it. I'm going to let my yes be yes, my no, no. Let's go for it. Well, he walks down there, and he's looking, and all he can see is just this big jungle. And he's sitting there, and I said, and I knew he had a bad attitude, and I wasn't going to let him bring me down or the other guy. And I said, look, why don't you go and get the cooler at the shop, fill it full of ice, buy a bunch of Gatorade, a bunch of water, and buy a couple of towels, one for each of us, that we can soak on the ice, and we can, when we get too hot, we can sit down and take a break. Well, when this dude came back, he left the trailer. He came back. We had a big portion of it. He got out of the truck, and he goes, you guys did all this while I was gone? He was only gone about an hour. And I said, yeah. And he goes, dude, you inspire me. And I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, it was a big mess. I go, yeah, it was a big mess. But if you cut one tree down at a time, eventually it turns into a smaller mess. You can look at the big problem all you want. But you know what? We got to deal with it. It's like moving a sand pile. Do it one shovel scoop at a time. See, people will lose hope when they see it and they think, man, there's no way it can be done. He might have tried to do this at another company at another time by himself and couldn't succeed. But I'll tell you what, if you just go out there and you attempt something and you start to move, whether you want to do it or not, there's a lot of things I don't want to do, but I've learned the lesson that if I just start doing it, it makes it a lot easier and you just keep going with the momentum. And when you're done, you look back and you're like, it gives you such a great sense of satisfaction where you can go, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for giving me the strength and the endurance to finish this. So, you know, some people may not have even seen that there was a need in Nehemiah's world. Well, why build the wall? They're just going to tear it down again. I mean, gosh, most of us are captured. See, others would warn that if you try to rebuild the wall, you're going to only stir up the opposition of the surrounding governors. And that could be true. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons for you and I not to get off of our rear ends and do something, whatever it may be. It may be the Lord's calling you to do something and you've got 91 excuses not to do it. But there's one reason why you shouldn't. It's because God asked you to do it. Look at verse 9 again with me. It says, Then I went to the governors in the region and beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. And now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. And when Sanballat and Tobiah, the officials, heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. They were bummed out. They, They were upset. And then look at verse 11. It says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. He came to Jerusalem He was there three days. See, Nehemiah was careful. He was secretive. Preparations that he had gotten to Jerusalem show that he anticipated some resistance to the proposal. So he had spent three days doing his homework and thinking about how to present this in a way that would overcome the objections. That's important for us to understand. That after that, he called all the Jewish leaders and the people together, and he began by stating the problem very plainly. And then he appealed to the need that they all felt. He says in verse 10, it says, you know, that we may no longer be a reproach. He didn't want to be a reproach any longer. They all knew that a defenseless Jerusalem was a huge joke to any surrounding country or nation or neighbors. They sensed that Nehemiah had come to seek their welfare. He only wanted to do good. He cared about his people. There was a tough job at hand because he cared. Look at verse 12. It says, Then I arose, and in the night, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart. Notice that. Highlight that. What God had put in his heart. And it says, to do at Jerusalem, nor as there was any animal with me except the one on which I rode. 
And I went by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and the grass, which was burned with fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and I viewed the wall and then I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And then the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews and the priests and the nobles and the officials or the others who did the work. And then I said to them, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. See, Nehemiah, he sees this bad situation. He says, man, we're in a bad situation. You guys know it. Jerusalem's desolate. Even the grass is burnt down. This place was ugly. He also identified himself with them in the problem. It wasn't their problem. Notice he says it's our problem. He didn't blame them for things, but neither did he gloss over the fact that they had a problem. And and you and I should be those people that say, yeah, you know what, as a church, we have a problem. Now, I don't mean Calvary, Katie, but I mean overall as Christians, we have a problem. Our problem is we don't take a stand. We complain a lot about all the horrible things that are going on, but we choose not to do anything. We expect other people to do it. Well, there's other people for that. There's bigger churches that can handle that. Here's one guy that was handling a huge problem. Finally, he told them how God had already been favorable as seen in the king's favorable response. Perhaps he showed them the letters and said, look, the king wrote these things. The king, the guy, the same guy, the same king who destroyed it. Are you serious? Really? He's, how'd you get money out of that guy? Well, the Lord. And then he says, let us arise and build. See, there's an art to working with people and learning to motivate them to accomplish great things for God. Some leaders err by becoming people pleasing politicians. Oh yeah, do whatever you want, bro. It's cool. There's a problem with that. They want everyone's approval, so they tell the people what they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. But they erode trust by because people quickly realize that, well, you know, this person, he's just trying to manipulate us, and he really doesn't speak the truth. Other leaders err by telling it like it is without sensitivity and tact. They don't take the time to listen to people and understand where they're at and how they feel about things. See, when people react against their leadership, they label them as disobedient, and then they move on. Nehemiah should teach us to combine wisdom, and that's what we get here. And this is why this is one of my favorite books ever, is Nehemiah teaches us to combine wisdom and tact with the plain truth. It's easy just to tell the plain truth with wisdom and tact. And the third group of people that Nehemiah had to work with were the enemies. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria to the north, Tobiah whose name is Jewish, means Yah is good, ruled the Ammonites to the east. Geshem was the leader of the Arabs to the south. And so they all opposed this fortified Jerusalem. They didn't want a wall because why? It threatened their political positions. They didn't care at all about the plight of the Jews, much less about the name of the Lord being exalted in Jerusalem. They didn't care about any of that. So they were very displeased. They joined together to ridicule the project. I've had people do that. You might have some very well-meaning people like, oh, dude, you're just a joke. That's a joke. You're not ever going to succeed in that. That's not going to work. This is, there's no way. Man, and, and it really wears on you. And, and so here we see the people doing that, these guys doing that. They accuse the people of rebellion against the king. And so Nehemiah demonstrates both wisdom and courage in this and dealing with his enemies. He was wise that he had sensed, it says. And there's no time for diplomacy. 
He says, I need to meet these enemies head on. Sometimes you just got to hit the battle face first. You just got to run into it. Any meeting to hear the concerns or to work out a compromise would have been a mistake. Look with me at verse 18. It says, and I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so they said, let us arise up and build. And then they set their hands to this good work. But then Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite, the official in Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, and they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Verse 20 says, so I answered them and I said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. He just told them the truth. So Nehemiah courageously confronts them. He drew the line between them and God's people. And sometimes that's what you and I need to do. We need to draw a line and we say, hey, here's this line. This is the line I'm going to stand on God's side of this situation. And a lot of people, you know, I mean, I've done this recently with some friends. People I know, they're not Christians. They claim to be Christians, but you wouldn't know it by the way they act and the way they speak. And I had to draw the line the other day. I was like, no. I'm not, I'm not playing that. But this was a mistake, and we need to correct it, and I will correct it, whether it costs me out of my own pocket or you're, you know, we, we can pay for it, but this is how it'll work. And so sometimes you just need to take a stand. So anytime God's people say, let us arise and build, and I hope that's the kind of people that we are. Let us arise and build, that we say that. That the enemy will say, let's arise and stop them. That's what will happen. The enemy's not going to allow it to happen. He's going to try to meet us head on. Jay Sidlow Baxter writes, There is no winning without working and warring. There is no opportunity without opposition. See, a godly man, a godly woman, must have the discernment to know when to work with people and when to confront and oppose them. Early in ministry, an older pastor had told me, just as I was being called out here to Katie, he was a mentor of mine, he told me, you've got to decide where you want to give blood. And I was like, what? I got to decide where I want to give blood. And he just looked at me and he goes, look me in the eyes. You've got to decide where you want to give blood. You're going to bleed being in the ministry. Where do you want to give blood? And it was great counsel. It was great counsel. Thus, to serve God realistically, you must learn to wait on him and to work with people. And finally, to serve God realistically, we must learn to wrestle with the problems. See, anytime you try to do anything significant for God, there's going to be problems. The enemy will see to that. We've already seen how Nehemiah dealt with the problem of the enemies, but also how he had to face the problem of a destroyed wall. And he began with a realistic firsthand appraisal of the situation. He looked at it realistically. But also he, again, it was so bad that he couldn't really, I mean, when you think about it, he couldn't ride his horse or his mule through the debris. As the leader, he needed to know exactly how bad things were so that he could develop a realistic and just a practical plan of action. So Nehemiah didn't gloss over the problems. He describes it to the people as, man, it's a bad situation. He told the truth. Hey, this is bad. I need your help. And again, we need the balance here. Some leaders, again, they refuse to acknowledge how bad things really are. They just kind of smile like, oh, yeah. And they're in the back of their mind, dear God, please help us. You know, I, I want to be the guy to say, hey, you know, things are bad. It's rough. We could use your help, and we do that. Hey, we need help in children's ministry. It's bad. Those kids, they're killing the worker. I'm kidding. They're just wearing them out. 
And they're your kids. And you ask their mom and dad, they're like, no, man, I need a vacation from them. So, you know, next Sunday, we're probably going to have a family service because, or we will, you know, the Lord will provide. But we start planning. What do we do? See, Nehemiah didn't gloss over the problems. And he describes it to the people. as like, hey, it's bad. And so, again, people in the trenches feel that, you know, here's Nehemiah. He's out of touch. He undermines, you know, he's, he's, he's not doing things he doesn't understand. But here's the deal. Sometimes if a person's in the trenches and a person doesn't admit to how bad the problems are, he kind of undermines his own leadership. Other leaders are so engulfed by the problems that they lose hope and they give up and they throw in the towel. Nehemiah realistically saw the problem and, as we'll see, broke it down into manageable units in order to get the job done. We'll see that in the next couple of weeks. So a couple of things as we close. To serve God realistically... We must wait on him, his timing, and work with different sorts of people and wrestle with all kinds of problems. Just because it's the Lord's work and he's on our side doesn't mean that everything's going to always work out smoothly and effortlessly. See, we need both idealism and what God wants to do and the realism that there will be major hurdles to overcome. But it's worth all the hassles. You know, I've seen people, I can't remember whose house I've seen it in, but there was a little plaque on the wall on the door. It said, only one life will soon pass. The only ones done for Christ will last. And I can't remember, it was one of my friends in high school growing up, and that always stuck with me because they had another one. It said, a family that prays together stays together. And you know that family is one of the closest still to this day, one of the closest groups of people that I've ever seen in my life. They're still very close. So see, I hope that all of you know the joy of serving him in spite of the inevitable difficulties that we have. I don't know if you guys know, but this morning we had sound, then we lost sound, and we couldn't figure out how we lost sound. And then the sound came back, you know, and it's, there's difficulties. You know, you would think God's hand would be like, oh, yeah, I want church to happen, so I'm just going to let it flow smooth for Calvary Chapel Katie. No, not always, because there's an enemy out there that says no, and we, we battle in the spiritual front. And so it's amazing how God works things out, but nobody lost their mind. You know, some people kind of panicked. And I remember just sitting up here on this thing going, man, Lord, it's your church. Show somebody how to do this. And somebody stepped up and figured it out. Well, we have our very own Nehemiahs in here. There's multiple Nehemiahs, not just one guy, but multiple. So we all should be like Nehemiah. Knowing that there's going to be problems, willing to deal with them head on, and having enough faith in a big God to know that he can conquer and do all things. Thanks for tuning in again today to Come Alive. Pastor Mark has been sharing insights and promises found in the book of Nehemiah, reminding you again of God's faithfulness and blessings that are still available to you today. We hope you'll continue to read through Nehemiah and see for yourself how God can touch your life. Is what you heard today about God new to you? Or are you questioning what being a follower of Jesus is all about? If so, today's a great day to begin a relationship that will bless your life and save you from your sins. We'd love to tell you more, so please get in contact with us. Here's Tracy to tell you how. Are you ready to meet Jesus and have your sins forgiven? We would be honored to be the ones to tell you about God's Son, who came to earth to pay the price for you and every person on earth. That price is death, but because Jesus died, you have the chance to live. Give us a call so we can tell you more. Our number is 281-391-5503. 
Thanks, Tracy. We're so excited to know that you're joining our family of faith. We'd love to meet you in person, too. So if you're in the Houston area, come visit us at Calvary Chapel Katy. We'll be able to tell you more and get you directions when you call us. That number again is 281-391-5503. We're so glad you joined us today, and we hope you'll tune in again to Come Alive.